chapter 2, Mark chapter 2. If you're our guest today, uh, we're in the middle of a series on the Sabbath. If that sounds weird to you, that's all right. Hold on a little bit. It is weird. And uh, we'll try to help you understand as we're walking through this journey together. This is week three in our series on the Sabbath. And we're looking at Mark chapter 2 from the life of Jesus today and how Jesus interacted with the Sabbath. Mark chapter 2, looking at verse 23, going through chapter 3, verse 6, actually. So in the Bible, you may notice verse numbers and chapter numbers. If you're familiar with the Bible, those are added later, actually. When the Bible was written, there were no chapters and verses. It was so you could find your place in the Bible. So there's actually no break there, uh, but we're going to read past into the next chapter because it goes together as you see the story unfold. If you're there, say amen. amen. Hear the reading of God's word. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text today, Sabbath as worship. Sabbath as worship. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you uh, for being such a good, good father. Thank you, Lord, as we gather today in your presence and we worship you and give you glory and set our hearts and our minds in your direction, Lord. It's also good and right that we would give thanks for what our earthly fathers have done, for who they are and all their flaws and all their sins and failures and fallings, maybe even absence. God, you still use that. You still use whoever we are and whoever we are around for your glory and to show us your goodness. And so we're grateful for that. We're grateful for what you've done in our lives. We're grateful what, for what you're going to continue to do in us and through us. And so we celebrate today. And as we come to your word, we ask that you would continue to reveal your heart as our Father to us. Lord, help us to understand that our Father wants us to rest. And to rest in your protection, your care, your love. And so help us to see that today as we look at your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Sandy Koufax is 
a name that many baseball fans know. If you're familiar with baseball, Sandy Koufax is considered one of the greatest pitchers in Major League history. Sandy Koufax pitched for the Dodgers for about 12 seasons from 1955 to 1966. And uh, in the end of his career, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame as one of the youngest players ever to make it into the Hall of Fame. I mean, he had a, a long list of records and achievements that, that would make any other baseball player envious. And so it was shocking, absolutely stunning. In 1965, in the first game of the World Series, the Dodgers are playing, and Sandy Koufax decides he's not going to play game one. I mean, it wasn't because he was hurt, it wasn't because he was injured, or he was somehow incapable of playing, but he decided he wasn't going to play for this reason. It was a Sabbath. In fact, Sandy Koufax, being Jewish, he, he realized that the game one was coming up, and it wasn't just any Sabbath. It was Yom Kippur, the highest, holiest holiday in the Jewish calendar. It was what uh, rabbis call the Sabbath of Sabbaths. It was the highest, most important Sabbath of all the calendar. So Sandy Koufax, he's deciding, am I going to play? Am I not going to play? He starts asking his Jewish friends. He asks his rabbi. He's like, what do you think I should do? He settles on his decision. I'm going to sit out. I'm going to choose to worship instead of work. Now, the public was outraged. I mean, people were upset. How could you leave our team like that? How could you do this to us? Some people were confused. What does this even mean? How, how does this work? Because they weren't very familiar with the holiday. And then other people were absolutely delighted. They were so proud, especially the young Jewish kids who grew up in that era. They, they were so proud of Sandy Koufax. He became kind of this Jewish hero in the 60s. In fact, MLB's uh, official historian, his name is John Thorne, he was in college when this happened, and this is what he said as he was reflecting on that time when he heard about this decision. This is how big it was. He says, what struck me as an 18-year-old was not only could someone profess his faith openly, but take a stance for his religion in opposition to the national religion. And baseball is America's national religion. I mean, the Sabbath is weird. You think about it. The, the Sabbath isn't just weird. It makes us weird. It, you start to practice the Sabbath. You start to do this thing, and it, it makes you strange to the outside world. And the reason it makes you so strange and the reason it's so weird is because it's so revealing. It reveals what really matters to you. Right? It reveals what matters to you because your use of time is what matters to you. I mean, time, you've probably heard, is, is the most valuable commodity. It's the thing you cannot replace. You can get more cars, more houses, you can get more clothes, you can get all kinds of things, but you cannot get more time. You can't create time, you can't extend time or, or borrow time. You, you can't do that. You can only use it. And everybody gets the same amount. You get 168 hours every week. And then the next week, you get 168 hours. And then again and again, you get the same amount of time. And so if someone examined your life, think about this. If someone examined your life and asked, what matters most to you based on your use of time? What would they see? What would they see? 
I mean, you think about, like, what, what would be most valuable to you? Would it be your, your expertise in, in the sport of your choice? You know all the stats. You know every historical event that's happened in your favorite team and all that kind of stuff. Or would it be that, you know, the, the approval of your kids and making sure they have every possible experience they could imagine would be the most valuable thing to you? Would it be power and success and status at your job that you want to move up the ladder and, and have influence? Would it be that dating relationship that's toxic and you know it is, but it just it's pulling on your heart? I don't know what it is. What, what do you think it would be if someone looked at your use of time and what matters to you? What would they say? See, we don't want to normalize necessarily Sandy Koufax's decision, but that decision went down in history as one of the most incredible moments in his career because it was so shocking to see somebody choose what mattered to them over what everyone else thought mattered. His use of time spoke to what he valued. And so as we continue this series today, uh, we've been looking at the Sabbath, calling it the, uh, the series Redeeming Rest. And last week, we're, we, we looked at how Sabbath is this rhythm. It's a rhythm that God has designed for us from the very start of creation. That when God created the world, He created it in six days, and then on the seventh day, He rested, not because He was tired, but because He was developing in all creation this rhythm of rest. That we would work and then rest, work and then rest. And so when we keep the Sabbath, when we have this rhythm of time, it really is a sacred rhythm. It really is this rhythm that, that is bringing us into the image of God, that we're imaging who He is and how He lives. And now this week, we're going to look at how the Sabbath doesn't just help us image God, but it actually reveals what's happening in our hearts. It reveals something about not only the God we worship, but the other gods that we tend to worship. It reveals something about our hearts and what matters to us, what we value, because it has to do with our time. And so I want to ask that question today. What, what does the Sabbath have to do with our worship? And if you're taking notes today, first we're going to look at the danger of legalism. The danger of legalism. If you're taking notes, number one, Sabbath legalism. Look at verse 23. This is a story from Jesus' life. It begins in verse 23 saying this, One Sabbath he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, we got to back up a little bit and give some context here. The, uh, the two most uh, defining practices of the Jewish identity in the time were circumcision and the Sabbath. Those are the two things that the Jewish community would say were their defining practices, and you could make an argument for either one, but especially the Sabbath could be seen as the most important. And so because the Sabbath was seen as so important, they had these rules that they would put around the Sabbath. It was kind of a hedge of protection, if you will, around the Sabbath because it was so important to them and that they would keep the Sabbath. So they wrote them all down in what's called the Mishnah. Somebody say Mishnah. See, you're learning some, some Jewish history here. The Mishnah was, was kind of like a commentary on the Old Testament with the rabbis. And so the Mishnah actually had 39 classifications of work that profaned the Sabbath. And things you would never expect. 
Things that, I mean, let me list, list just a couple. Loosening a knot. Sewing more than one stitch. Writing more than one letter. Uh, dis, or re, rehabilitating a dislocated foot or hand. Or even repairing a fallen roof. These are all in the Mishnah. They, they said these were things that if you go beyond that and you get into that realm, that is considered work. See, they were trying to provide this rule book of rest, right? They were trying to say, if you really want to rest, this is what rest looks like. And in creating the rule book, they never rested. They, they missed the whole thing. And so that's the context. That, that's kind of the cultural uh, reality happening. And so then you have Jesus on the Sabbath walking with his disciples through this grain field. And they're tired. They're hungry. They're exhausted. They start thinking, man, maybe we can have a snack as we're on our way to wherever we're going. And so they, they realize they're in the middle of a grain field. Let's just grab some grain. Now, this might sound illegal like they're stealing, but it's not illegal. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 23 calls it gleaning. And it was in the law that they designed it where people who were farming would, would reserve certain areas of their farm for people who were hungry. It was this principle of mercy that people were allowed to come in and glean a certain amount so that they could be fed and not be hungry as they're walking. And so they were gleaning from the field. It wasn't illegal what they were doing. What was illegal in their minds of the, of the religious folks were, it was on the Sabbath. How dare you do this on the Sabbath? You should have prepared a little bit better than this. You should have packed a lunch. You should have thought ahead. This is a day that you rest, you don't work, and to, to prepare food was on the list. And so they think they've got an opportunity to get Jesus, right? They're going to get Jesus and, and show everybody that he's a fraud and he doesn't care about the law. And so they ask, why are you doing what's unlawful? And now let's be clear, Jesus never broke the Sabbath. He never, he never broke the actual Sabbath, but he did break their tradition. He did break their interpretation of what the Sabbath was. And do you hear their anger and suspicion? Right? For them, the Sabbath was this measuring stick of spirituality. It was this sense that, that if you really love God, you will keep these rules. Boom, 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 boom. And if you break any of them, you show that you don't care. It was a way to show that you, you could prove yourself, that you can have value, you can have worth. And so they completely twisted the Sabbath's purpose, right? The Sabbath was designed by God to liberate. The Sabbath was designed and given to God's people after their liberation from Egypt. They, they were in bondage for 400 years. Four centuries without a single day off. And God says, I want you to rest. Four centuries with no one ever resting except their master. And God says, I am a better Lord. I want you to rest. I'm, I'm commanding you to rest. And yet they had twisted it. They took their slavery to, to sin and they traded it for slavery to the Sabbath. And this is what happens, right? Legalism makes Sabbath slavery by another name. It's slavery by another name. When I was a kid, I was growing up, uh, going to the, the, 
circus that would come to town in Orlando. And my parents probably took us two or three times to the circus. And as a kid, I loved it because all the stuff going on, you know, it's like a sensory overload. There's so many things happening at the circus. But I always wondered, how did they keep these elephants, these massive elephants, from just running into the crowd and stampeding everybody? That's what I was wondering. And I didn't realize until I was older that the only way they were able to do it is they started real young. They started with a baby elephant that didn't have as much strength, didn't have as much power, and they would tie a chain to the leg of the baby elephant and tie that chain to a post in the ground. And any time the elephant wanted to pull away from the post, it would pull on its leg and it would hurt it, right? It would, it would dig into its skin. And it would pull and it would pull. The harder it would pull, the worse it would get. And so it finally gave up and realized it wasn't strong enough to get away. And as the elephant gets older and older and bigger and bigger, finally it's fully grown and it's, it's 10 feet high, 10,000 pounds, and it has more power, more ability than it could ever imagine to pull that little stake out of the ground. But you know what? It never tries. In fact, sometimes the trainers don't even use the chain anymore because they know that this elephant has been conditioned with a habit of bondage not a habit of freedom. In other words, it, even though it's not real bondage, it, it lives in that bondage. It kind of goes towards that bondage because it's such a habit. It's such a way of life that it's used to it. Yeah. And this is what's happening in the, in the Pharisees and the religious leaders here. They're, they're so used to their bondage, they, they take something that was designed for freedom and they turn it into another form of slavery. And Sabbath becomes a habit of slavery, listen, when it's motivated by guilt rather than grace. Right? We end up making it just another way to feel guilty. I feel guilty because I know I should be Sabbathing, and, and when I do it, I feel great. And when I don't, man, I feel like a failure. I feel like it's one more spiritual discipline that I just can't get my mind around, can't get my life around. My life's always you know, chaotic and hectic, and it gets to Friday, and I'm supposed to have a Sabbath on Saturday, and I just feel guilty that I didn't get ready for it again, and so I'm just tired of it. Does that sound familiar? Like, if you've been on this journey the last couple of weeks, and you've tried Sabbathing, and, and you're kind of new to it, th this is a real temptation that you feel really great about yourself when it goes well. Like, man, I'm, I got this down. My life is in order. Our kids are figuring out how to do what they're told. And, you know, we've got our calendar organized. And we figured out a way to make this work. And you fall right back into this trap where Sabbath was designed as a gift, not guilt. So that, listen, even if you're lazy all six days, God says, take a rest. Even if you've done nothing to earn it, because the whole point of Sabbath is not that you work really hard so you can earn your place and now you've done it all right so you can rest. No, it's grace. It's grace. But it's also not this thing where you feel like I haven't kept it in, in, in forever and I'm working so hard, so hard, so hard, and I haven't had a Sabbath in weeks or months or years. God isn't saying, you know, you, you've, you've wrecked it, you've messed up. He still extends the invitation, come, Sabbath, Sabbath, right? It's grace, not guilt. It's renewal, not reward. It's, it's liberation, not legalism. That, that's what it's designed for. And, and so our legalism, if you find yourself in that trend, that habit, 
what it is, is it's revealing to you what really matters to you. See, legalism reveals something about our hearts. The Bible calls it idolatry, right? And we, we talk about idolatry around here and, and use this, uh, this definition that an idol is making a good thing into a God thing. That's it. An idol can be anything. It's making a good thing that God designed for our life and our flourishing, and you turn it into a God thing, and you begin to worship what was never designed to be worshipped. And let me tell you, you can do that with the Sabbath. You start to worship your sense of control. And the fact that you can't control your circumstances is why you're so frustrated. And then anybody outside of your control that messes up your Sabbath, it turns into another time for you to get angry at people. Because I'm supposed to be resting. Right? Because the Sabbath has been elevated to a place it's not meant to be. Or you could be worshiping, uh, you know, pick something. You could be worshiping your feelings and and now that you've elevated your feelings, I, I'm, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, and, and the Sabbath is going to fix all my, my tired feelings. And, and at the end of the Sabbath, you're disappointed, and now you're depressed because you were hoping it would meet some kind of emotional need. And it didn't. There could be all kinds of things, but, but the point is, when you do that, when you make that move to make the Sabbath some kind of God in your life, it's dangerous. It's bondage. And so how do you stay away from that? This is what Jesus tells us. Uh, It's love, right? This is the second point, Sabbath love. Look at Jesus' response to the religious leaders in verse 25. He says, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. I love this because Jesus' response to the religious leaders is, haven't you read your Bible? Like, he's just pointing out some stories that they might know. And, and he says, this, this is the story. It's, it's from David's life. David is being chased by King Saul because Saul is jealous of David. He's trying to kill David. And so David is running for his life with his men, and they are tired, they're exhausted, they're they're being chased, and they come to the house of God looking for relief. And they have nothing to eat, and they ask the priest, "Can, can we get something to eat? And the priest says, I don't have anything to eat. I don't have any common bread, is what he says, but he says, I do have some holy bread. I have the bread of the presence, and the bread of the presence was laid out on the altar in, in in the holy place, and it was only for the priests. This was designed for their nourishment and for the worship service. And he says, that's all I got. And then he gives it to them. And Jesus says, don't you remember that story? It was was when the the law of, of legalism was triumphed by the law of love. The law of love. I'll never forget a couple years ago, it was about 10 years ago now actually, I had the opportunity, incredible opportunity to go to Israel and, and tour some of the Holy Land sites and went with a group with this guide and saw so many incredible things. But one of the things I never thought would, would leave an impression on me was the elevators. The elevators. We were in a hotel on Saturday 
and uh, it's the Sabbath day, and I'm coming out of our hotel room down to go to breakfast at the bottom of the hotel. I get in the elevator, not paying attention to any signs or anything, and the door just automatically shuts, first of all. And then it goes down one level, opens up, closes again, goes down another level, opens up. I haven't pushed any buttons, haven't done anything. By the third level, I'm thinking, this is a little strange. I look over at the guy next to me, and he's clearly from there. He, he doesn't look anything like us tourists. And, and I said, what's going on with the elevator? And he says, oh, this is a Shabbat elevator. That means on the Sabbath, it stops at every single floor so you don't have to push any buttons, so you don't have to work on the Sabbath. And I thought, wow, I've never heard of anything like that. But what, what it was, was it, was it was this triumph of legalism. It was making every attempt to, to not somehow mess it up. And then it became a burden. And Jesus is contrasting this kind of attitude in verse 27 when he says to the, to the religious leaders who were asking this question, he says this in verse 27. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Did you catch that? The Sabbath was made for man. In other words, the Sabbath was designed to serve us, not us serve the Sabbath. They thought the Sabbath was to keep you in bondage, to keep you in your place, to keep you, you know, uh, in, this, in this spot where you're under control. And Jesus is saying, you've got it all backwards. The Sabbath is designed not for you to serve it, but for it to serve you. It's designed for your flourishing, for your health, for your wholeness. It, it's not the Sabbath for you. Or sorry, it's not you for the Sabbath. It's, it's the Sabbath for you. And so this is the whole heart of worship. Sabbath worship reveals and it reorients our love. It, it's reorienting us because it's designed for us and our flourishing. And so right after this, Jesus makes this comment, right? He makes this radical claim and then he walks into the synagogue. This is chapter 3 in Mark. He walks into the synagogue. It's still the Sabbath. Now they're watching him because Jesus just said the Sabbath is not... Uh, it, it's not something you serve, it serves you. And, and their, their mind is blown. They're thinking this guy is a heretic. He's going to do something crazy on the Sabbath. And there's a, there's a man there with a disabled hand. And they think, oh, this is perfect. Jesus is going to try to heal him. And we're going to catch him in front of all these people. And Jesus knows their hearts. Jesus knows they're trying to trap him. And so Jesus calls the man forward. Could you imagine you're this man, you're just thinking, I'm coming to church, I'm just having a good time by myself, and now Jesus brings me in front of all these people, and what am I supposed to do? But he comes forward, and then Jesus asks this question of the whole crowd. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Now, Jesus is not just speaking about the man, but he knows their intentions that they, they also don't want to do harm to him. They want to do harm to Jesus. And so Jesus kind of has this double meaning here where he's, he's talking about them killing him. And, and that's their intention on the Sabbath. And his intention is to heal and to give life. He confronts their obsession with what's lawful. See, Jesus... Is, is saying, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking, is it lawful? 
I'm asking, is it loving? Is it loving? That's the Sabbath question. Is it loving? And their response is nothing. There's no words. They're just silent. And their silence really makes Jesus furious. The Bible says that he gets angry. He gets angry at the hardness of their heart. He gets angry that they would look at this man and think of him as some object for their trap. He gets angry that they don't see that he needs help and wholeness and and love. They, They just see a problem that they can use for their benefit. And they're silent. See, the fruit of sin is often silence. Silence. And then he says, Jesus breaks the silence and says, stretch out your hand. And when he does, he's healed. And Jesus is showing the Sabbath was for him. Right? The Sabbath was for him. But the leaders were for themselves. For themselves. And this, again, this is all about idolatry. See, idolatry, it has this strange principle where you can't replace or you can't get rid of idols without replacing idols. You can't remove them unless you put something in their place, right? We, we as creatures, we, we are designed for worship. We have to love something. We have to worship something. And so the Sabbath reveals what we really love. It reveals that we love uh, control and rules and approval and our time and our comfort and all these things. It reveals what we love, but here's the beauty of the Sabbath. It doesn't just show it. It doesn't just show you what's going on. It gives you an opportunity. It invites you into something else. In other words, it shows you your your idolatry, but it also reorients you to a better love, to a greater love, to a new worship. And that worship reorients your love. It gives us an invitation to see God again, to see people again, to slow down and take our eyes off of ourselves and our own desires, our own ambitions, our own productivity. It takes our eyes off of all the things of this world and says the Sabbath is reorienting my heart for my restoration, for my healing, for my wholeness. What does that look like? Two things. First of all, first of all, it means to be present with God. Sabbath reorients your heart by slowing you down enough to be present to the God who's already present. Right? It's not that he left and you couldn't find him. You've been so busy you haven't seen him. And Sabbath finally slows you down to see him. And so you can take time on that day to just do that, to just be with God, to reflect on what he's done in your life throughout that week, to give thanks, to praise him, to reflect on his word, to meditate in prayer, to do whatever that looks like for you, to just be with God, to reorient your heart. So I'm no longer worshiping the success at work or I'm no longer worshiping the approval from my family. I'm no longer worshiping the the status at, at whatever the place is. You, you are reorienting your life to be present with the God who's present. But the second thing is to be present with people. Right? If, if you're reoriented to God, Jesus is saying you, you finally see people again. And what was happening for the religious leaders was their idolatry of the Sabbath was keeping them from seeing the people who were right in front of them. Right in front of them. 
And so that, that can look like all kinds of things. You could take that time to invite some friends over to your house. It, it could be that you go out for coffee with a friend who's struggling in her marriage. It could be a time where you, you know somebody's grieving the loss of a family member or something. And so you just invite them to your Sabbath dinner and, and you enjoy one another and help them grieve and, and, and uh, find joy in that moment. Whatever it may be, I don't know, but you see people that are around you. You hear that? The Sabbath is not designed to be the space where I get 24 hours of me time. But it's to reorient you to God and people. There, there might be some me time in there too. But if it's all about me, you're missing it. And so it's, it's really, it's, it's God's way of reorienting you to worship Him by loving God and loving people, to be present, to be present. Uh, author Pete Scazzaro tells a story, and I think I've told this before, of um, farmers in the Midwest who had this strange practice to us in Florida, because we're not very familiar with blizzards. But uh, they have a lot of blizzards in that area, and sometimes the blizzards come real fast. And, and you don't know that it's coming, and so as a farmer, you might be out working in, in your farmland, and, and all of a sudden the blizzard comes upon you, and you can't find your way out. Some of the blizzards are so bad, you can't see your hand in front of your face. And so you, you, it can be dangerous. You can freeze out there. There's accounts of people who are freezing and dying right on their doorstep because they were disoriented, and they couldn't find their way around. They're walking in circles in their own backyard. And so they started this practice on the farms where they would tie a rope from the house to the barn because they had, at some point during the blizzard, they had to go check on the animals. And if they went out in that kind of condition, they may not make it back. But if they had the rope, the rope would be their guide where they could hold onto the rope all the way to the barn and then all the way back. And so they designed this to be the guide that would reorient them in the chaos, in the confusion and all the the circling around not knowing where I am it was this thing that would keep them straight and God has designed the Sabbath just like that to be this guide where you're veering off and and you're starting to worship the approval of people you're you're veering off and you're starting to worship control you're veering off and you're starting to get concerned about influence and power and all these things, sex and pleasure and comfort and all these things have become so important. And God says, here, here's the Sabbath. It keeps you back to where you're going, towards me. You hear that? And, and so the Sabbath is designed with that kind of, of direction. And ultimately, it brings us not only to the love for him, but his love for us. And this is the last point, the Sabbath Lord. Look at Jesus' radical claim. He says in verse 28, He says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Even of the Sabbath. I love that Jesus says that because He knows their hearts. right? He knows that this Sabbath has been elevated to the highest place, the highest authority. And He says, I'm Lord even of the Sabbath. Even of the thing that you think is the greatest, I'm greater. But also he's saying this, in Genesis chapter 2, God was the one who established the Sabbath. And so he's saying, I'm Lord even over the Sabbath. What is he saying? I am God. I I am putting my place or putting myself in the place of God in, in divine lordship. 
He's saying, I'm Lord over your time, over your work, over your comfort, over your success. I'm, I'm Lord over your productivity, over everything in your life. And my lordship is expressed by my love. And so he's saying Sabbath really, it's this greater love. It points towards a greater love by a greater Lord. And that kind of radical claim is what is the beginning of the end for Jesus. Right? Their immediate response in verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately they held counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Right? This is the beginning of the end for Jesus. No one can claim to be Lord over my idols. No one can claim to challenge my authority. No one can, ex- can claim to expose my sin and live another day. Jesus has to die. Jesus has to be gone. And so there's this gospel exchange that's happening already in Mark chapter 3 where Jesus is taking the place of another. It happens in both stories, right? It's Jesus' life for this man's healing. It's Jesus' reputation for the disciples' feeding. It's always Jesus for us. And so it's this exchange, this ultimate exchange that leads ultimately to the cross. Right At the cross he hung there, his stripes were for our sins. His nakedness was for our shame. It was, it was ultimately his work for us, his nails for our freedom. No Lord has ever loved us like that. And so he's saying, I'm Lord even over your sin, even over your death. I'm Lord over everything. And it's this loving exchange that creates a new identity. Freedom. It creates a new identity where we were slaves to our idols. We are now free to worship God again. Where we were slaves to our legalism. We are now free to love again. Where we were slaves to our works of righteousness. We are now free to rest again in Jesus. See, the gospel gives us more than forgiveness, more than a clean slate. It gives us freedom. See, God has made his proclamation over us. You are forgiven and free to rest. No more bondage. Freedom. Freedom. See, it was New Year's Eve in 1862 when black folks were gathered around in churches across the nation. And if you know the history, you know that date. New Year's Eve was right after the Civil War had ended and had been obviously a terrible, horrendous, terrifying experience. People had lost their lives. People had lost loved ones. They had lost futures. So much had gone into that. So many blood, sweat, tears, and prayers had come to this moment. And President Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation back in September, and it was going to take effect on New Year's Day. New Year's Day. And so everyone gathered together to celebrate this moment, this moment of freedom. And as the clock struck midnight, it was their sign, we were free. But the news took a long time to get out to everybody. And you know, if if you've been aware of what's been happening in the last few weeks, as Juneteenth has become a national holiday this past week, this leads to two and a half years later. It would be a two and a half year gap between that evening and when uh, General Granger would go to Texas with his troops and he would arrive with thousands of troops and he would stand on the Confederate Army's former balcony of their headquarters. And he would read from a scroll that said this, 
The people of Texas are informed that in accordance to a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. All slaves. And it was at that moment when he said that, that people erupted in praise. They didn't even hear the rest of the proclamation is what the testimony says. They just started to celebrate and rejoice because they had known such a long season of exhausting tyranny. They had known all this had happened and and they didn't know their freedom. They had been legally free, but hadn't experienced their freedom. They hadn't enjoyed their freedom. They hadn't lived their freedom. They hadn't known their freedom, but now they knew their status. Free people. Free people. Listen, some of us today, we've been living in our bondage not knowing who we are. And you need to hear the gospel proclamation today of your freedom. Hear what the general of heaven says, the general of heaven's armies reading from the divine scroll. Hear what the king of eternity says, sent down from the records of eternity. He says, you are forgiven. Forgiven in the grace of Jesus. You are free in the faithfulness of God. You are alive in the hope of eternity. You are resting in the mercy of God. You are secure in the spirit of the living God. This is who you are. This is who your Lord has made you to be. Jesus says, I have come as the Lord of the Sabbath to set you free, not to work and work and work, but to rest. To rest in me. And some of you today, as we close, you you need to know who you are. You need to remember who you are today. Because you've been caught up in that bondage. You've been caught up in the, the slavery of idolatry where you've been serving so many other masters. And God wants you to remember. But others here today, you need to hear that for the first time. There's, you know, a proclamation for you that God has forgiven you. God has done all the work for you. Jesus on the cross is dying for your sin, your guilt, your shame, all your past, present, and future so that he could give you rest. And the way that happens is you come and you rest. That's what it means to have faith. When we talk about putting your trust in Jesus or putting your faith in Jesus, we're saying you you rest in His work for you. It's not you work and then hope He approves. It's He's done all the work and has already been approved, and now you rest in Him. You say, Jesus, you are the Lord of my Sabbath. You give me rest. You give me life. You help me flourish as I trust in you. And when I trust in you, I know you've forgiven me, you've died for me, you've given everything for me. Will you rest in him today? Let's pray. Oh Lord of the Sabbath, we thank you for your rest. We thank you we come as people who are exhausted and worn out and tired of trying to earn your favor tired of trying to prove ourselves, tired of trying to make sense of our own failures and our past and our present. Lord, we come tired and weary, but you give us grace. You say, come to me, all who are weary. I will give you rest. And so we ask that you would do it today. Lord, take away, remove our idols, all the things that we've replaced you with, and give us a heart that's full of you. Reorient us in the blizzard, in the chaos of all that's happening, all the distractions, all the things that are pulling for our attention that keep us from seeing you. 
Help us to see you. Help us to find you in grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.